Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Cree Annotators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. For this episode, I am joined by writer and cartoonist Ryan North, who is uh, behind the most recent adaptation, well, really the only adaptation, of the graphic novel Slaughterhouse-Five. Of course, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five with art by Albert Monte. It was released via Archaea and Boom Studios. It's an amazing, amazing adaptation, adaptation rather, and a graphic novel I highly recommend people check out. One of my favorite works of 2020. So we're going to talk to Ryan a bit about Slaughterhouse-Five as well as uh, some of your other outstanding comics works, like, of course, Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, Dinosaur Comics, and all the rest. But first, uh, Ryan, thanks so much for joining. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you is, what was what in your mind is kind of the appeal of adaptation? Because you took on this project here with, with the Kurt Vonnegut classic, obviously, with Slaughterhouse-Five. But then you've also, you know, throughout your career, touched on, you know, the, the works of Shakespeare and various literary classics. Um, what is it for you that, that you kind of enjoy about bringing those things to comics, to graphic novels? That's a great question. Um, for me, the, the joy of Slaughterhouse was we wanted to make it feel like it had been born in this new medium. Like if you had somehow never heard of Kurt Vonnegut and never heard of Slaughterhouse-Five, you could pick up this book and you could read it and you'd say, oh, what a good comic. And it wouldn't feel like you were reading like a photocopy of a, of a prose book with some pictures at it. And we wanted to feel like it was natural there. And so for me as the right. writer, like that, there's the challenge and there's the fun is how do we translate this book into this new form and make it feel like it's always lived there? Um, doing the, the, the Shakespeare choose your own path books. Um, I guess the fun of it there was the, what attracted me was Shakespeare is such a ridiculously canonized author, right? Like he's almost universally accepted to be the best writer in the English language and to take that high art and put it in what is classically seen to be a lower form, a, a second person book where you choose what happens next. That felt it, it sort of, it was fun and it was funny and it allowed us to, uh, I say us because like me and the reader <laughs> to sort of explore the space without the the <laughs> weight of the ostentation that normally goes around with it. So there's, I think it's an adaptation. It's always a translation and a transformation. And I was talking to Albert about this and he actually just, he said that every adaptation is a betrayal done with love. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'll buy that. Yes. You are mm. taking something that exists and you're changing it. Quote. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're betraying what the author clearly intended, um, but you're doing it in the service of hopefully something higher. There can obviously be a bad adaptation, and I really didn't want to be the guy who screwed up Vonnegut. So that was my main concern. <laughs> adapting was to do a good job, but um, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that's interesting. It is. It, it's a challenge. Uh, you mentioned, so I, I listened recently to, you did an interview on uh, Off Panel with David Harper, and he talked about this book a lot. And, and you mentioned that uh, Slaughterhouse-Five in particular would not have been your first choice to adapt mm. <laughs> a Vonnegut <laughs> because of the degree of difficulty, right? And the, and the weight that that book carries. I was mm -hmm. curious, and, and maybe you said it there, but I missed it. What, what book would you have done? Like, do you actually have one, like, or, or even just a a general handful in mind of like, actually, I would have preferred to start here instead. Gosh, no. Um, I was sort of in anything but slaughterhouse five <laughs> thing in my head. Um, anything but this, <laughs> anything but this. Cause it's like, it's his most famous book. It's his most popular book. It's his most studied book. And if you are going to adapt, like start adapting classic literature into, into a graphic novel, uh, it just felt safer to start, with a less 
canonized text where this it's the, the stakes are lower, right? Like if you mess up, you're not ruining Slaughterhouse Five. You're just ruining. Yeah, I don't know. God bless you, Wanda Jade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I get that. It's it is right. It's so canonized. I I admit, like as a fan of Vonnegut uh, for a long time, as as so many are. Um, I, when I see something like that, I'm like, oh, it's adapted into a graphic novel. I sort of meet it with like, like some resistance, you know, I was mm-hmm. like, well, what, why? Right. That's like the first question is Me like, too. well, why are we bringing this to a graphic novel? <laughs> what are we doing? Um, here? Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Like, yeah, no. And I think, and I think you and, and Albert did a, a pretty amazing job of answering that question for, for you. Like, what was the, what was the key to that? Like, what was the key to answering that question about okay what is what is the why here what is the advantage here um that you wanted to really like hone in on throughout the project that's a great question um for me it was you know that the prose book already exists and if we're just going to do a comic that's the prose book with pictures that brings up the why are we doing this (laughs) this feels sort of empty but if we can do this book and use the medium to highlight or to draw out or to sort of point at stuff that is there in the text, but maybe not as visible or not in the same way or not, not even just stuff that hits differently when it's, when it's in the different medium uh, that felt like you could create something that would be true, hopefully to the original text, but also add to it, but not in a way of adding it to it in the sense of just like, hey, now it's Kurt Vonnegut plus Ryan North, and I'm throwing in dinosaurs. It was like, let's 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 tease some stuff out that's there and sort of highlight different aspects to it. Um so that that was the hope. Uh the, the I mean the, the hope at the end of the day is that you read the book and you feel the same as you would when reading the, the prose version of Slaughterhouse Five. But also you feel like, oh, this did some stuff in comics that I hadn't seen before or that I wasn't expecting from this text. And in doing this, so I can now appreciate the original book in a different way, which is, I mean, I'm also a huge fan of Vonnegut. Obviously I would never have done this book. if I didn't uh, love him. And so that was my purpose there. If that makes any sense. Cool. Cool. No. And, and I think like for me, that was the thing that I was surprised and it really won me over even early in the work where I was like, Oh, I, cause it has been a little while since mm-hmm. I've read the novel itself. And I was like, Oh, this is a really nice refresher of, of the tone of the themes. Uh, and then like the visual component, obviously you get to do some really fun ways of sort of reimagining that world. Um, that, that comes to life really successfully. I was wondering, like, have you thought at all? So like, there's going to be a number of readers and, and you said this, like you want them to get the full Slaughterhouse Five experience, where like this is the first time they've read the story, right? Mm-hmm. Rather because they're they're fans of yourself, they're fans of Albert, they're just comics readers, right? Like there's going to be a, a number of people like they come to it before the novel. Um, what would you say is the advantage of reading the novel after you've read your version of the graphic novel? So flipping the script, mm-hmm. <laughs> like what what do you think the novel brings to the table that you like maybe couldn't capture? That's interesting because my wife, Jen, had not read Slaughterhouse-Five and she waited to read my graphic novel version first. And uh, I don't believe she's actually read Vonnegut's original prose novel yet. So she'll (laughs) she'll be the test case about that. Um, Yeah. I think, I mean, obviously in the prose version, there's more that you can see. Like you can fit more on a page of prose than you can usually fit in a page of comic, especially in terms of dialogue. So there's there's scenes in the prose book that we couldn't put in the graphic novel uh, as we're trying to get this down. I mean, the goal of condensing it to fit in this new medium is to capture the heart of it and the soul of it and not make you feel like anything is missing. 
And so when I was adapting the book, I bought a, a copy yeah. with large margins and wrote in like all this stuff. This absolutely has to be there. I like, guess not Slaughterhouse if this isn't here. But maybe like I remember we cut out one scene. It's just a couple sentences where he goes to uh, the Grand Canyon. Billy Pilgrim as a young child and pees his pants. And it's you can't get that across without at least three or four panels <laughs> to show that happening. And it's almost the expense of it isn't worth the payoff in a comic. Well, it does work in prose. So it's they're, they're sort of two versions of the same story. Um, I, I would say if you've read the Slaughterhouse graphic novel and you liked it, definitely check out Kurt Vonnegut. He's got a pretty big reputation. You might like him too. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. I, is there a chance, do you think, of a return to Vonnegut adaptations? I mean, I, I guess I don't know what the ins and outs of of working with like the, the Vonnegut estate might be like, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. you know, there are rights and licensing issues and all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but is that, is that something that you've even with Albert or, or not that you've talked about in terms of like, Hey, there's like a real opportunity here to maybe bring more of these stories to life that people wouldn't otherwise have read. Yeah, I know. Um, even before the book was finished, Albert and I both said, this is great. We love this collaboration. We would love to do more Vonnegut books. And so, our editors definitely know that we're down for more. I think it's a question of the Vonnegut estate. And I mean, I presume the book's selling pretty well. It's it's doing well as far as I can see. <laughs> so it's it's up in the air, but I would definitely uh, love with Albert to do more of these. Because it's, it's such a, it's a fun experience. It's also a respectful, almost honorable experience. Like it's, it's weird because mm-hmm. messing with Shakespeare, it felt like, you know, I say, oh, me and my buddy Bill collaborated on this book <laughs> across time. But working with Vonnegut, I have, uh, I, guess I'll, I guess I'll say it, I do have more respect for Vonnegut than I do for Shakespeare. And it's it's uh, very interesting to work with someone's text like that, especially when he's no longer with us, right? Like, if he were alive, adapting his book would be a very different thing because I'm sure he'd have a finger in the pie and he could tell me this works and this doesn't. But with him not there, you're sort of having to do the best you can, knowing that you just don't want to mess up this idea of Vonnegut that you have in your head. It's it's a really interesting process, for sure. That is interesting, because with Vonnegut, it's, it's you know, a creator, a, a, a living, or not a living, but a, a legend, but it's like within living memory, you know, mm-hmm. whereas with Shakespeare, it's almost like it's an idea. It's an institution. You know, yeah. it's like it's it's so long ago, I, I suppose, that I, I know like amongst literary scholars, obviously kind of a big deal. Um, but yeah, I, I can see how Vonnegut would almost have more of that like, I don't know. Yeah, just that personal sort of weight um, of like, you know, you're you're working with someone's work here who is, is extremely, extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um that's interesting. I did you have like a, a hard page count with this work? So I know sometimes with like licensed stuff, you know, they might say, Hey, you're, you're contracted to do this graphic novel. Like, you know, you get a hundred whatever pages that it is, you know, 170 or something. Um, was that something that was baked into a contract and kind of set, uh, like a, an exact template for you? And I guess the follow up there is like, if so, does that make it harder or easier for you to work knowing like the exact page count that you have? It wasn't a hard page count, but I knew they told me, you know, we're looking for about 170 pages. And so what I did, which was very practical and very nerdy, was I looked at the number of pages my prose copy had, and then I divided that by 170 to get a ratio of how much my compression had to be. 
And as I worked on the graphic novel, I updated that percentage. So I knew, you know, I'm now 50% of the way through my graphic novel and I'm 50% away through the prose book. So I'm doing well. But if those got out of whack, I knew that I'd have to start compressing stuff or go back and change things. But I always had that uh, percentage thing guiding me as I went. So I knew that I was about where I needed to be. The ultimate goal, of course, being to avoid a situation in which I've got, you know, 10 pages left in the graphic novel and 100 pages left in the prose novel and thinking, oh, shoot, I wish I had another 50 pages. That's really smart. I like that. Yeah, to actually have a, a tracker alongside. Okay, that makes sense. What What was the hardest part then of the adaptation? I mean, because I think like both you and Albert are, are very clearly in sync, I think, in terms mm-hmm. of vision, in terms of tone, and just like that sort of respectful capturing of what Slaughterhouse-Five is intended to be. Because it, it's like respect it, it too it's like it's a it's a work that is taken very seriously but it also doesn't take itself too seriously you yeah. know there is that that humor and a lot of times very dark humor throughout um it, which i think probably helps alleviate some of that like the weightiness of of kind of the subject matter and it being you know a very strong anti-war novel but but for you like what was the the hard part like was it was it pieces where you had to almost put words in Vonnegut's mouth, you know, like <laughs> things he didn't specifically write or was it, uh, I don't know, something else entirely. No, that was, that was absolutely it. There were parts where uh, Vonnegut would describe what was being said without telling you what was being said. And it works great in prose. It does not work that well in comics. And there's this uh, climactic scene where this yeah. character rises to his feet and, and, and sort of tells the Nazis why this is never going to work. And, uh, Vonnegut gave us a description of that speech and not the actual speech. And I'd forgotten it until I reached that point and it felt like a prank. <laughs> it's like, oh, great. This uh, very important speech is not written and now I have to write it. But it was honestly kind of freeing because uh, getting to write in Vonnegut's voice and making it, trying to get it to pass as Vonnegut uh, was was fun. I've, I've talked to the writers where we talk about how like after you read Kurt Vonnegut, you start writing like Kurt Vonnegut for a bit. You've got Kurt Vonnegut disease because he's such a clear fun writer and you have to fight that but when you're adapting his work trying to pass him you get to lean into it (laughs) so it felt like getting away with something honestly yeah that's interesting sure right because it's not it's not actually a bad thing (laughs) to sound like him uh when you're when that is the point i definitely definitely reading it again like not having read the novel for a while i would not have guessed um that that even that there were moments of like oh, that dialogue's not in there. You know, like it, it definitely feels fluid, which I feel like is the ultimate success for you. Yes, uh, and I, you. I imagine many other people had there was reaction. A... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let, let me tell you why, uh, how I've determined you are the ultimate success. <laughs> <laughs> so but I, I got a, a uh, No, but it's, it's quite good. It. I definitely didn't note it. Sorry, I interrupted your praise of me. I should have let you keep going. Um, I was going to say I got a, a similar note from our editor, Sierra, on one part where she uh, highlighted this part and, and said, you know, this is, this is really good. And I got to be like, Oh, I, that's part I wrote. That wasn't Vonnegut. <laughs> Thank you for that sincere compliment. <laughs> um, one thing I, I really enjoy about your comics work is to weave in, like you weave in various elements of craft that deliver info and story fairly different from traditional comics. Right. Um, I think the footnotes in like the gutters of squirrel girl are, are an example that everybody can kind of remember if you've, you know, familiar with squirrel girl. Um, and there's a lot of that even within slaughterhouse five, whether it's yourself or Albert kind of weaving in just different, like the one thing I really love is like Kilgore trout's comics within comics. Like I just, I love yes. that device always. Um, 
and it's it's so successful i think uh especially with with the because i had forgotten too that like Kilgore Trout was because he wasn't a comics author in the book, right? Like mm-hmm. he's like sci-fi and making him a comics writer. It's so perfect because it fits it fits him being looked down upon, yeah. right? In in that way that comics so often can be. Um, but then it lets you do comics within comics, which Albert Monte like absolutely nails. I just I ever since Watchmen, that's like my favorite thing in mm-hmm. comics, <laughs> and it works so well here. Uh, I, what I was going to ask with it is like, do you have a a bag of tricks saved up in terms of like comics craft or like, are you kind of always investigating like, Oh, like I wonder if we tried this thing. Like, do you save like a document of ideas or are they all just on a per project basis? I wish I had a document of ideas of comic tricks I could use to make things easier, but I generally just, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you pay attention when you read and you go, Oh, that's a neat, that's a neat trick. I like that a lot. Um, and when we were first proposing the book to the Vonnegut estate, one of the things I said was, here's what I want to change. And I want to make Kilgore Trout be this comics author because it has that joke of like, how, how, mo- how much more of a failure can he be now? He's writing comics sort of making fun of the medium that we all love, but also it lets us show these stories in this really beautiful visual way. And Albert just knocked out the park. He, I noticed on those pages he did, which are done as, as, as a golden age sort of EC horror comic almost, he does the the coloring thing where the the blacks they go outside the lines on the highlights of someone's hair, knowing it's not going to show up, but you can see it when it's printed that way. And just it feels so authentic, and it feels like oh my gosh, you're getting to read this Kilgore Trout comic, which again Vonnegut normally usually summarizes them like that. Kilgore Trout's is great technique to just tell the stories you don't want to add. You put the work in of telling and just get the the cool part out of them. So yeah, it's 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 comic stuff like that. Um, when we first meet um, some of the characters, we do little three-panel comics to show what they look like. When we first meet Weary, we do a, a paper doll to show all the stuff he's carrying. It was less of uh, what comic tricks can I use and more of how do we best capture this in comics, right? Like for the for the Weary thing in the book, it's just this wall of text, a paragraph of all the stuff he's carrying. And the, the effect of reading that is, oh, he's carrying a lot of stuff. <laughs> Cause it's this big paragraph you just skim through, mm-hmm. but in comics, you get that same emotional impact of, Oh, he's carrying a lot of stuff by showing you it all at once on one giant panel. And it felt like that was, that was early on in writing the book. And it felt like, Oh, this is, this is what I'm trying to do is capture the same feel in a different way because different mediums have different strengths and let's, let's play into those. Uh, in a way it's a very formalist comic because it's trying to, get comics to do everything it can. And we do, you know, neat little comics tricks like having um, narration boxes, obscure balloons, or having balloons within balloons, <laughs> within thought bubbles, showing that the nested thoughts people are having. And these are techniques that aren't normally done in most comics, but there's there's stuff that you can do in any comic. And there's stuff that are they're they're supported by the medium. Like it doesn't I don't have to train you as a reader of this is what is happening because you can figure that out just by looking at the page. It's such a it's such a great medium. I love comics. <laughs> Let's you do neat tricks like that. I love it. I love it. Yeah, no, it's and I think that's one of the most appealing things about this adaptation. Again, like just in terms of winning people over is it's like, you know, because again, it's getting back to the question of like, all right, why here? Why this medium? Um, and, and you start answering it just like visually even. 
and, and stylistically where it's like, oh, yeah, like the, you portray, you know, weary this way because you can you can see it all in a, a paper doll cutout in a way that uh, captures that spirit of the text. Um, and I, I I love that, too. Um, and, and too like just the nature of comics, because the novel is is tricky. And obviously it's Billy Pilgrim is on stuck in time and you're jumping around from scene to scene and place to place. And it's like, I, I don't, I don't know if Slaughterhouse five has been adapted to like, like movie or like TV. I mean, it, it seems like surely someone must've tried, but it seems kind of crazy. Cause I, I feel like in comics, it actually works. Cause we, as comics readers, we're used to jumping from place to place and time to time. And we're in Trafalgar and now we're back on earth. Right. And that, that actually feels kind of normal if you read enough comics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm wondering like, has anyone actually tried to do this in like, cause, cause I can see like the, Oh, Amazon prime has the rights and they're going to do slaughterhouse five and everyone just being like, no, <laughs> like putting their <laughs> hands up and being like, why would you do that? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. But, but comics, it works. Yeah. There is a uh, film version of slaughterhouse five done in the seventies that Kurt Vonnegut saw and loved uh, from what he said about it. And it's interesting because it is to my view, a very different text. Like one of the things that defines slaughterhouse five, the prose novel and the the graphic novel is that the so it goes when anyone or anything dies. You get this so it goes, so it goes, so it goes, carrying you forward through the text. And I didn't rewatch the movie in preparation for this, but the last time I watched it, I remember being struck that the phrase so it goes does not appear in the film. <laughs> and it felt like it's such a huge thing because it felt like this is the soul of the book. And Wow. It, I can see it not being in the movie because it is a very different medium and you want to play to the strengths of your medium. But it made me realize for this graphic novel version, like we we do have to, you need to have the so it goes there because that feels to me the the structural heart of the, the formal, the formal stru- heart of the book where this is the reminder you get every so often of <laughs> futility, but also comedy and fate and all these things tied up in that one little phrase those three little syllables i knew that i you know we have to have that in this book too we can't we can't not have it although maybe in a movie it would get annoying because clearly somebody thought it would when they cut it out (laughs) that is kind of amazing that it wouldn't even be in there uh at all i mean to me it's like i actually feel like the modern comics version of this is dark side is in mr miracle um <laughs> intriguingly enough where it's just mm-hmm. you know those those black and white panels got a lot of attention right and just intersplicing them but that's that's kind of the so it goes model uh mm-hmm. in so many ways is just that repetition and that meaning and it it builds meaning based on context you know um but it's like yeah it's so essential to the work i, I feel like if if like readers take away nothing from that novel they probably remember so it goes mm-hmm. and like they probably remember so it goes and billy pilgrim's uh tremendous wang <laughs> those are probably <laughs> the two main takeaways yeah no i think you're right um one of the things we did early on <clears throat> which was kind of by accident and kind of intentional was the book begins with the you know famous opening line all this happened more or less and we open our book mm-hmm. with a variation on that line which is all this happened to kurt more or less which seems like a small change, but sort of signals that we are changing things. Like this is not going to be so respectful to the text that we're not afraid to, that we're afraid to do anything to it, but also it's situating us as this is Kurt Vonnegut's story. And we're telling this story in a different medium because there's a version of Slaughterhouse five that 
you know, as much as Kurt was a character in his original text, he points out, you know, that's where I was. There's Kurt Vonnegut, the author of this book. There's me. Like we could have done, here's Ryan and Albert leading you through the story. And it felt like that version of it would start, in a way you could see, oh, this, this is descended from Slaughterhouse-Five, but it felt like Slaughterhouse-Five is Kurt Vonnegut's story. And as much as we have to be present to adapt it into this new medium, it's not our story and we should get out of the way whenever we can. Like we should be there to produce this book. Like the way I imagined it in my head, <laughs> my, my, my own fan fiction about it was that I was an editor and I'd commissioned Kurt <laughs> Vonnegut to write a comic script and he's turned in this novel and it's completely unsuitable for the medium, <laughs> but we got to go to press. So my job is to turn this into the comic script <laughs> that Kurt Vonnegut was supposed to have turned in and instead turned in this way too wordy prose novel. And that was sort of my conception of it in the way that an editor generally tries to be invisible as much as they can in a book. That was my role too, as the adapter. This is Kurt's story. I'm just here to tell it to you with Albert, of course. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, you can, uh, I can already see that vi- that version of, of you and Albert, you know, hanging out in the background of scenes. Right. And it's yeah. like, there's a, there's a world too, where like that does, ma- I don't know. It's like on one hand, I'm glad that's not what it was. And obviously that's what you decided ultimately, you know, so I don't feel too critical in saying that. Um, but it's also like, I can see it because that is like Kurt kind of, you know, he injects himself into the prose novel. Right. And now yeah. you're doing the same thing later. Um, yeah, that's an interesting choice to have like right up front there. Um, although definitely I, I appreciated the way you guys went. No, I mean, this was, this was an absolute standout for me again. Like I'm not super, I, I saw a lot of headlines kind of before going into it and people were like, you know, Slaughterhouse Five, the graphic novel, it's incredible, better than the book, and you know these sorts of hyperbolic things. Yeah. And I was like, everybody, slow down, no way. <laughs> oh, <you're wrong. laughs> and then I read it, and I was like, yeah, this is great. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, let's transition a little bit to outside of Slaughterhouse Five. Um, some of the other stuff you've got going on. So one thing you're writing right now is Power Pack for Marvel, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm curious, like, why why jump to Power Pack? Um, why this series? Like, what's your affinity for these characters and kind of this world? Like, were you a were you a big fan of like the Simonson era? Did you come to them later? Um, kind of what's your your relationship with the team? Yeah, I feel bad because I did come to them later. I, I didn't read any comics growing up. We didn't have a comic book store. And at, at that point in time, if there wasn't a local comic book store, you just didn't read comics. <laughs> there, there weren't bookstores. Trades weren't there. So I didn't read comics until I was in my 20s. And I didn't encounter Power Pack until... 2019 maybe <laughs> very recent to it uh it was the simon stories that really inspired me absolutely and in a sense you feel like uh, a poser right like there are people who have literally grown up on these characters and now here you show up to write them and that feels like there's a mistake being made like clearly it is people who have grown up with these characters should be writing them you're just this person who just discovered them and i was very sensitive to that and i wanted to make sure that like i did my research and i knew the characters as well as i could so that i could tell a story that felt like yes this this is still these are still the four kids but they're just they're new adventures they're more modernized but it still captures that heart um, which I'm realizing as I'm speaking to you, it does sound a bit like what I was saying about adaptation, <laughs> the sense of there's a text that exists and you're going to try to do something new with it, but you want to be respectful of it. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I wish I could say, oh, you know, I, I've loved these characters forever. But uh, in some cases, you don't, you don't really know when you're going to meet a character, connect with a character or four characters. 
and you kind of just uh, are lucky enough to meet them when you do and then try to do well by them as best you can. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I, I think that's actually, I, I feel like there's an advantage to that as well because, you know, like it's not always, it's not always the writer who has a favorite character who's the best suited to tell their story necessarily. You know, a lot of times like that outside perspective or coming in with something fresh can be really advantageous. We've been talking a lot um, just on like various like Marvel reading clubs. And actually I just had an interview not too long ago. We we're talking about the Anne Nascenti written Daredevil and just the fact that she like came into Marvel as an editor, like not as a comics person. It was yep. just like, this is an available editing job <laughs> essentially. And just kind of the different perspectives that that can offer can be extremely fascinating. And I, I do think too, though, with power pack, I mean, I, I tweeted about this, but like, it, this is something I think you find in, in most of your work and definitely in your Marvel work. Um, you're very good at exposition and creative exposition as far as like, you know, whether it's trading cards and or Deadpool's cards and, you know, unbeatable squirrel girl or just kind of these creative ways of like, here's the essential info. Power Pack feels like a series that is from someone who knows the team very well, right? Or at, <laughs> at a minimum has read their stuff very recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, when I, when I did Squirrel Girl, I... I pitched on that after having only read the available Squirrel Girl comics the weekend, the two days before, <laughs> like you, you, you jump right in. Um, but yeah, it, it um, it's funny because with, with Power Pack, I had this problem where I want it to be accessible and I want new readers to be able to enjoy it, but I also want old readers of Power Pack to enjoy it. And that means at some point, you need to explain who these people are and what their powers are and who these enemies are. And I didn't realize until some ways in a Squirrel Girl that her Deadpool cards were the world's most efficient exposition <laughs> device. Like they weren't invented for that. They're invented just because I thought it'd be funny. But structurally, it's one panel where you get, you know, here's a villain, here's their origin, here's their powers, here's what they want, here's what they don't have, here's their weaknesses, here's a joke about them, done. And we can all just proceed. It's so efficient, but only Squirrel Girl has those cards. <laughs> I can't keep using it as a crutch. And so I had to invent uh, different ways in Power Pack to, to sort of get across that same information without having those panels you'd see in like 70s comics where everything would stop and go and say like, as you know, Cyclops, here's how my powers work. And this is why you won't be able to defeat me. And then Wolverine would say, ah, but my indestructible adamantium claws can cut through this door. <laughs> Just stuff like that, which it's clunky and you want it to feel, you never want to feel like the characters are lecturing to you unless the villain's giving an amazing villainous monologue. And so part of the job is to figure out ways that you can slide this information in as naturally and as seamlessly and as fun as possible so you don't trip over it when you're reading it. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. How weird is it for you to be done with the unbeatable Squirrel Girl? Like, do you have moments where you wish it wasn't over? Because you were on that book, which was such a, a fan favorite and uh, like, a, you know, Eisner-nominated comic and, and all these things. Like, it was such a... It was such a success, I think a surprise success on the Marvel side, just because they don't have a lot of books like that. Um, and you and Erica Henderson and Derek Charm like really did some amazing work there. Is it is it weird for you? Like are there days when you're like, mm, kind of wish I was I was writing Doreen right now? <laughs> I mean, I'd be lying if I said no. Uh, I miss her. And she's she's fun to write. The thing that made me sad about leaving the book is that like we had this great team and we, you know, had one an Eisner for it and all this great stuff. But the core of it was that she approached the problem and the challenge of being a superhero in a unique way. And there's no way to take a Squirrel Girl story and make it into, I don't know, a Flash story. Like she approaches the problems 
in this unique to Doreen way, which meant that saying goodbye to the book was saying goodbye to that particular style of superhero storytelling. Like I won't be able to do that again because anyone else doing that would feel like, Oh, this is, this is knocking off squirrel girl. (laughs) This, This is, she has such a distinct voice that you can't, you can't just copy that onto another hero. So, I mean, I do miss that for sure. And, uh, it's, that was part of the challenge of power pack actually is Doreen approaches this idea of helping people with superpowers. She's a smart character. She's a smart woman. And so she has to think deeply about this and come up with smart solutions and something the power pack faced in the book. I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but, um, at a high level, they're also dealing with this challenge of if I have these superpowers, what is the best way to use them to, to actually help people? And, they don't do it in the mm-hmm. same way Doreen ever would or did, but it's a little taste of that flavor, I think, of how how would you actually ethically do this? Like, what is the best way to do this? Is it really if you're punching people in an alleyway or can we do better? Um, and I don't, I mean, I love superhero comics. I don't want to deconstruct them to the point where they're no longer fun, but I feel like at least the the older kids, Alex and Julia, are at a point in their life where they would probably be questioning this. Like, it's a point in your life you're trying to figure out who you are and who you want to be. And part of that is is what I'm doing, what I want to be doing, is what I'm doing, what I who I want to be. Especially at that age, it's, it's all you think about in my experience. <laughs> so it felt like it fit for those people in mm-hmm. a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. Uh, so, do you think of your core audience uh, and your voice? You know, your your authorial voice, like as purposely sort of for teens or YA. And the reason I asked that is I was sort of struck, like looking through the Eisner nominations and they're all like, you know, best humor for, and then like the define an age, you know, like eight to 12 for adventure time or like mm-hmm. 13 to 17. Whereas I, I as someone who is now in their thirties, read your work and enjoy it all the same. You know, I, I think you definitely have a much wider ranging audience than, than those labels, but do you actually is that something where you kind of write and you're like, that's, that's actually my target. Um, or is that just not even cross your mind? Yeah. The most I get to it is trying to write for all ages. So, you know, when I'm writing squirrel girl or when I'm again, past tense was writing squirrel girl, I wanted for all ages, which meant not for kids, like don't talk down to them. Just, you know, everyone keeps their clothes on and nobody swears and then we can all enjoy it. (laughs) And I don't particularly think of myself as being, Oh, this is, this is a YA, this is a YA voice I'm trying to hit. But I will say, uh, last week, I swore twice on Twitter. Personal Twitter account, I felt like I sweared some of the time. I guess I didn't, because someone messaged me being like, you never <laughs> swear. You swore twice in one week. What's going on? <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess I don't curse as much there as I thought I did. <laughs> You've betrayed your your loyal YA audience, yeah. <laughs> I have. I have. Um, I try to keep it accessible. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. I, I think all ages is... I think it's a thing that a lot of people realize is very difficult to do, like true good all ages. You know, it's kind of the secret of like Pixar's success and so many other things where yeah. it's like, you know, it, it is very difficult to tap into something that can appeal to an eight-year-old and a whatever, you know, 40-year-old. And and I think mm-hmm. there's there's a skill set there that, yeah, you definitely like the the Marvel work and, and your other stuff definitely brings to the table. Um, you know, And it's, it's that thing too where like now that I have kids, there's so much value in like, like there are jokes here that make both of us laugh and my, my son, my one son is three. That's and like, great. that's, that's a big deal. Like that's hard to pull off. Yeah. My, my, uh, one of my editors on squirrel girl, uh, Will Moss emailed me recently cause he has a child and the child's old enough to be reading squirrel girl now. 
And there is an issue. It's a choose your own path Galactus issue where if you win the comic, you get a coupon we put in that says this entitles the bearer of this coupon to get snacks from whoever, like free snacks, free coupons for snacks. And when we did it, <laughs> funny joke, no consequences yeah. for us. And now his son is old enough that he's wanting these snacks. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, the, the choose your own adventure stuff is is so fun. Our, the swarm uh, issue was one that I, I think I read first of your like choose your own adventure work. And I, I think it actually got released as like a free comic book day thing. The first did, time yeah. was how I saw yeah. it. And it blew my mind. I was so into that. Yeah, I was absolutely in love with that comic. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I also, this is the thing where I, you know, again, confess not being as well read as I might appear to be because I thought Swarm was a major Marvel villain because I had an action figure of Swarm when I was a kid and it was one of the few I had that were Marvel. So I said, oh yeah, Swarm, got me no beast. Everyone knows this guy. And then my editors were like, where did you find this <laughs> Swarm guy? I was like, what? He's like up there with Dr. Octopus. Is he not? He's made of bees. What's not to love? <laughs> Oh man, that's so good. Uh, now let me ask, and I I won't spoil anything for for listeners, but have you have you seen any swarm news lately? Is how I'll phrase this. I have heard some swarm news um, on one side of the Marvel Empire, uh, which made me very pleased because I I'm excited to see what that guy is up to. Okay, okay, great. Yeah, same. When when that happened. Uh, I, I almost fell off the couch and my, my wife was just like, what is wrong with you? But I was so excited. <laughs> uh, speaking of adaptations um, and kind of where we're, we're just taking this, uh, what would you like to see from an MCU version of Unbeatable Squirrel Girl? Um, as someone who certainly understands Doreen Green uh, as well as, as just about anyone on the planet, um, what would you like to see? Because like, I, I think it's probably only a matter of time before this character is adapted and, and brought into hopefully like a, a cool Disney plus series. How, how do you think that could work? It's hard. I think squirrel girl is a hard character to write because uh, she is smart and she is empathic and she believes in the best of people and she'll try to redeem her villains, but she's not naive and she's not a Pollyanna. And that's sort of a hard needle to thread sometimes, I think. Uh, plus the fact that in the comics, there's, a shared universe, yes, and we all understand that it takes place in the Marvel 616, but you kind of get this idea that Squirrel Girl's corner of the Marvel Universe, while it's canonical and while it's as real as any other part of it, it's a little kinder <laughs> than the rest of it. And the MCU, I think this idea of shared universes for a larger you know, movie-going, not necessarily comic-reading public, is a lot newer. And we have a bit of that, like the Thor Ragnarok corner of the MCU is a little more fun than the Thor the Dark World corner of the MCU, but they're both canonical. But it will be it would be a challenge to try to fit in this this woman who uh, is unbeatable <laughs> and could have solved that Thanos problem real quick uh, without tweaking it a bit. So I don't I don't uh, envy the person whose job it is to do because it's a hard thing to make it all click together without breaking. Other things like Squirrel Girl and the Punisher can exist in the same comics universe, but Squirrel Girl and the Punisher in the same MCU feels like one of those characters doesn't belong with the other in the same way. But that's just my opinion. I, I don't yeah, know anything about yeah. this stuff. Sure. No, I, I hear you. No, it's it's a tough atmospheric sell. I, I feel like that crossover that's going to go badly for one of those characters. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably, probably better to avoid. <laughs> Although now we mention it, like Squirrel or Punisher, Punisher has met Archie in the comics. 
And I would be fascinated to see an MCU Punisher meet like the Archie TV show characters <laughs> and how that would go. Oh, man, with Riverdale. Oh, yeah. that would be that would absolutely be incredible. Totally, totally agree there. Um, so I did have one Patreon question here. Uh, this is from Justin, who's a supporter of our uh, we do a podcast called My Marvelous Year. And he wondered uh, what were so your, your dog's name is famously uh, Noam Chomsky, which is a fantastic dog's name. He I wondered did. what were the runner up options? Uh, if you if you remember or if you had some that were close to beating out Noam Chomsky or perhaps not close, but nonetheless, yeah. second place. The name I initially pitched to my wife and she didn't like it because she didn't want to be shouting it. And also she thought it was a long walk for a short drink of water was that we call the dog Dr. Leonard McCoy because it's a great name for a Star <laughs> Trek character. And incidentally, we would never call him Dr. Leonard McCoy. We'd call him Bones for short. <laughs> and she was like, I don't, rightfully so. <laughs> it's not good. It's a, it's a short story. It's not a name. Uh, so Chompsy was the name we agreed on. And I love him. It's a great name for a great dog. And he does like to chomp, so it works out perfectly well. Uh, although I did tell someone in the dog part, they asked what uh, Chomsky's name was. I said, his name is Chomsky. And they misheard me and said, his name is Trotsky. And I was like, no, but great name for a horse. <laughs> So if I have a horse, I have the name picked out already. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. Yeah, there you go. There you go. It's like a telephone gave you the name for your, your upcoming horse. So we'll, yeah. we'll look for some Twitter pictures of you <laughs> uh, getting into equestrian <laughs> here in the, near, in the near future. Um, cool. What else is up next for you? Gosh, um, there's the rest of Power Pack coming out. Uh, there's a few more issues left and mm -hmm. they go really big and really crazy. It was a lot of fun to write because it was conceived of as a miniseries you get to write a story with a beginning and a middle and an end which can be you know unusual in comics for sure and uh, i have a non-fiction book coming out that is not yet announced but i'm almost done with it uh, i wrote a book a couple years ago called how to invent everything survival guide for the stranded time traveler where the premise is you're trapped in the past mm -hmm. <laughs> you're not getting back so here's how you rebuild civilization from scratch and that idea of taking nonfiction but wrapping this sort of fun fictional premise so there's an urgency to learning what's there and a motivation for it, uh, I really enjoyed. So I'm working on a book that's not a sequel to How to Met Everything, but sort of a spiritual successor in using that idea of nonfiction in a fictional candy coating. But nothing's announced yet, so I can't say anything except, you know, please keep paying attention to me until the book is out and then you can buy it. <laughs> <laughs> cool we can do that um all right awesome uh ryan this was a pleasure speaking with you uh listeners definitely highly recommend the works here including slaughterhouse five and power pack will include links in the show notes for all that fun stuff um but otherwise ryan uh thanks so much and it was a pleasure it was my pleasure thank you for i mean you do a lot of uh interviews talking about books and it's rare to get really thoughtful questions so i appreciate that they're really good questions Thank you. Thank you. That is very nice to hear. 